Hello and welcome to episode 78 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark and coming up on today's episode it's going to be another musical guest because I'm joined by the songwriter and the vocalist Dave Halls and do you know what? I'm absolutely thrilled because in 2019 one of my most listened to albums according to Spotify was Kick and this album is absolutely phenomenal from start to finish. I won't claim I'm one of these fans that have been around for years, I'm not. What I did is I was on Twitter and I think one of my friends, it might be Mike or Ben or someone, had posted up about this album Kick. It had this really good image of a a girl in black and white and it just caught my eye and I thought I'm going to check this out. I listened to the song Fireflies and that was it. I was completely obsessed with this guy. I went back and listened to Bury Me in Philly. I think I listened to Resolutions, I don't think I've done it in the right order, but I went back and had a listen and I'm absolutely sold and honestly right now Kick is just, it's still being played every single day, I fucking love it, so I'm so glad that he's joining me on today's episode. But you know the score by now, at this point of the episode I go back and I like to talk about my previous episode and there's no way I'm not going to talk about episode 77. I was joined by Bernard Rose, now yeah, The timing of this could not have been better. I think I released the episode on the Monday. By Wednesday, we had the poster for the brand new version of Candyman. And then we had the trailer only a couple of days later. But this really helped push this episode. So much so, after 77 episodes of Mark and Me, we've had our first ever number one in the podcast chart. So thank you to everyone that took the time to listen to that interview. And even today, I was looking at the numbers. It's really, really absolutely flying in the chart still. Loads of people are commenting online. And you know what? It's absolutely awesome to see the response. But this is the point now where we're going to talk about today's episode. So as I said... When Dave Hawes was playing in the UK, I knew this was a great opportunity. Thanks to my absolutely amazing, awesome friend Hayley for sorting this interview, I got to sit and talk to Dave. And you know what? This interview is one of my favourite, one of the nicest guys in music and one of the most talented guys out there. So let's get straight to it. Here's my interview with me and Dave. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, Dave. It's it's an honour to have you on the podcast. Oh yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, What I want to do for... All of the listeners out there is take it right back to the start. So when you were growing up, what was those kind of first albums that got you into music? Well, I was in the musical household. Um, my dad is an avid rock and roll fan, and also like uh, the, my mom and dad were evangelical Christians as well, which is often that strange mix does come up often. And uh, so there's a lot of music in the church, and then they were also fans of. Um, you know, Tom Petty and the Beatles and, and Bruce Springsteen and Bob Dylan and the Stones and all that stuff. So I was raised with all that, but the first record I got on my own that I liked was this Philadelphia band called The Hooters. They had a couple of hits in the 80s and they were really lighting Philadelphia on fire. You know, they were really selling a lot of tickets and stuff. It's really exciting to see like a homegrown band. And then uh, Brian Adams is Reckless and the band Heart had put out one of their big um, 80s records right around that same time. So those were the, the first ones. And then I kind of got into Aerosmith and Iron Maiden and Harder Stuff. And that sort of led me. I had another uncle, actually, when I was probably about the same age, eight or nine, who listened to The Clash. Right. So I got turned on to London Calling really young. And then when I circled back around to punk through heavy metal and stuff like through Metallica got into the Misfits and all that um, it was interesting to me to, to see that the Clash were like in the same 
lists of bands as like some of these bands that were new to me, like the Misfits and stuff. So that was kind of the way in. Um, but I've always just been transfixed by music. You know, I have a, I have a nephew now who's three. My sisters all have kids, and my three-year-old nephew, Oliver, is like possessed by music. You know, he runs around and pretends he's Eddie Van Halen, and it's just crazy to kind of see, like, oh, I wonder if that was kind of how I was. Just so, you know, single-minded about it from a very young age. And, um, and that kind of led me along onto the path that I'm I'm still on really. So obviously there's some really good foundations there with the Beatles and the Clash and some of the great bands you've mentioned, but what was it that you saw, what band or what gig you went to when you started to then feel what it was like to attend a gig, which is so different, isn't it? One of the first gigs you went to. Well that was that band. That was the Hooters. We yeah. see them at the Tower Theater. So it was like a night away from my parents with my uncle who was cool, you know, like he he didn't have kids and he was like into rock and roll, went to shows all the time. He took me and we stood like in the back row and it was a mix of terror, you know, like that first kick drum hit, puts the fear of God into you when you're a little boy. And um, in total, like, you know, fear and like, complete passion for it, you know, it's like they had the crowd in their hand and, you know, to see that and kind of feel like you know them from staring at the the jacket of the, of the LP and knowing the song lyrics and stuff and see the power that that holds. Like as a little kid, that's pretty, pretty big at, at like eight years old. So it was, it was that. And then, you know, I was wanting to go to gigs from then on and only allowed to go to some, you know, like, it was pretty, it was probably pretty annoying for my parents to constantly be, you know, getting hit up by their kids. Oh, I want to go to this gig and that gig and that, you know, <laughs> Were your parents quite supportive of you? Because every sort of parent's nightmare is either their kid wants to become a professional sportsman that never happens, or they want to be a rock star. Was it? Were they behind you the whole way, or? Well, yeah, so, yeah. For the most part, I mean, they were supportive in that they're supportive people. You know, they were good at parenting enough to know that like you should nurture your kid's interest. Um, they weren't into the kind of stuff I was. I mean, I definitely, it was simultaneously rebelling against the Christian culture that I was involved in, you know, by, by being into music, but also having it be Metallica or the Misfits. You know, they were anti, or, or they were standing sort of, they were going against the grain of what I was getting taught in Sunday school, and, and I went to Christian school, so that was, you know, it was like kind of my way to push back against that programming. So I think my parents were probably torn. They probably loved that I was into music because my dad and mom loved music. My dad still does. My mom's not with us, but my dad was, is like, he's come out on tour with us and stuff like last year. And, you know, he loves music and he's super into what Tim and I do now. But um, at the time, you know, to be into bands like the Misfits and Iron Maiden, I don't think he was necessarily pumped on the style of music, you know? <laughs> so it was a, uh, it was a bit of each column, um, but yeah, ultimately they were they were supportive. They bought me a guitar, and, and you know, let me use his amp and stuff for band practice, so on and so forth. And obviously, at the moment, you've been promoting the Kick album. Now, is this the first album that you've done where you've been not just writing on your own? You've had help, and obviously, you and your brother have come together. Did that kind of 
take any pressure off for you or did it make it more of a stress for you? No, it took the pressure off. Um, I just think like having someone to write with makes the whole thing less filled with doubt and it takes less time. You can get to it quicker because you've got someone to bounce things off of, someone to fill in some of the blanks, someone who, you know, in, in certain instances, like, you know, the, the ditch, like, the, the, him started that whole conversation. He started the ditch, of course. So to have that um, touring relationship blossom into a writing relationship has been really great. Um, yeah, he sort of helped me finish a bunch of the songs on Very Mean Silly. Um, but in this... In this instance, it was a, a full collaboration. So, um, yeah, it takes the pressure off. It, it's really fun, and it's kind of opened me up to, to co-writing with others as well. So it's a pretty eye-opening thing. And, and what was the first point when you realized, like, oh, my God, like, my brother can actually write a song? Uh, when we were putting together Bury Me in Philly, he came up with... Um, a couple lines in Divine Lorraine that I was like blown away by. The middle of the road takes its toll. I thought it was just such a great line because so many people, especially like in Philadelphia, say, ah, it's kind of middle of the road, you know, about about something just being not that, you know, ah, they're, they're, we're in the middle of the road kind of thing. I just thought it was a great metaphor. And that was one of them. And then um, but as we came together and wrote Shaky Jesus, like that, that really blew me away how much insight he had. Um, and from then on, I was like, oh, let, let me just keep running these ideas by him. And uh, we ended up with that record kind of finally coming together after so many of those songs being at like 80% or 90% done or, you know, just me not being sure. Just showing them to him and having him help finish in various capacities was, was really great. And then obviously working on this album and writing these songs and it being such a success, do you think it's had a massive change to the relationship you have with your brother? It's made us closer and, um, it's you know, it's made him integral to the whole operation. You know, it's a family operation now. I'm not sure how to... I've, I've definitely asked him, like, well, what do you want to do about the fact that we're playing under my name? And he's like, I don't care. Things are going well, you know? Like, we're people get it. It's growing. It's you know. Let's let's leave the growing thing grow instead of worrying about how it's branded or something. So it's something that's on my mind, but not so much as he's, he's he's pretty cool with it. But it's made us closer. You know, there's a 15 year gap between us. Um, and as much as it was exciting to have finally get a brother, I have three sisters. Yeah. Um, you know, I wanted a brother my whole life, and finally got one when I was kind of 15 and halfway out the door. And, you know, struggling to want to even be around the family and he kind of brought that together but then you know it's 15 years is a big gap especially when you're in your 20s and um you know drinking a lot and so on and so forth and touring a lot so to be able to come back together and close that gap with with music being our entry point has been like one of the great blessings for me in life you know to, to experience that and have this closeness with my brother I mean he's with me all the time now so it's it's really terrific and from your side of the perspective of the like the relationship with your brother was it quite easy for you to let go of that kind of control a little bit because obviously it was all you and now you've had to kind of share that like he said it's fine with using your name and he's cool but for you what's it like letting that control go a bit yeah I think at, at almost any point in life when you decide to let go 
you are surprised often by how great the results are or how, how I mean, you can stand in the middle of the river and, and try to dam it, <laughs> or, or you can go with the flow and let things kind of take their shape and just try to guide the process. I think that's what songwriting often is, even if you are doing it by yourself, that you're channeling energies that are not necessarily your own. Um, so I think, yeah, letting go is, is, is a big part of the process. It's often when the best things come, when you're by yourself or you're co-writing. So, um, yeah, it was great. It felt good. It felt good to, to have it not be... I mean, look, you know, the older people get, the better off you are if you make it less and less about you. And that sounds weird coming from like a quote unquote solo artist, but that was sort of never my intention was to, was to be a solo artist. It just sort of happened due to circumstantial stuff in, in the late 2000s, you know. So um, it's been great how it's worked out. And with you two, is there kind of, I know you said there's 15 years difference, but do you still have that brotherly? kind of rivalry between the two of you where one of you tries to kind of outright the other one or trying to do kind of push each other or you kind of still got that bit of rivalry that most brothers have no we don't have the rivalry because there's such a gap i mean yeah. we we're never vying for the attention of our parents in the same way we we're never vying for the same girl or the same set of friends or any of the stuff that often you know fuels brother rivalries like you see in Oasis or the Black Crows or something you know like I think those are much those siblings are much closer in age but I do think we push each other in a more um I guess in just a more hey let's try to be great kind of way and so it's healthy instead of trying to compete I mean you know, obviously when you're coming up with lyrics or chorus you know melodies or something like you want yours to be great um but you know i'm i'm often just pleasantly blown away by when tim finishes it and goes oh my god that's great i wouldn't have thought of that that's such like a welcome new energy to a song especially because oftentimes the collaboration ones are the ones you're not sure how to finish anyway in other words like there's certain songs that come all on their own fully baked and they fall out of the sky, and they're there, you know, they write themselves. And um, But that's not most of them. That's just, I think that, you know, seems to happen more for, for Bob Dylan or something, or maybe that's just a myth, but, like, for, for a lot of us, it's work. And it's better to dig a ditch together than it is by yourself. So. I was reading quite a lot of old interviews with you, and you talked about looking at the writing and recording process, and now you see it more as a job than you ever have. Is that is that still true? Well, it's a job that I asked for, though. Um, yeah. I see it as a job in that it's the way that I make my money exclusively. So um, I think if I look at it that way, it's easier for me to buckle down and take it seriously, just coming from like a working class background. When it comes to the artistic portion, um, you know, you want to free your mind of those kind of constraints and and try to get as close to like some kind of divine source or whatever as you can in order to like get inspired. But a lot of it is just hard work. You know, sitting down, making the time for it, using what craft you've developed, um, leaning on, you know, the various long-standing songbooks and so on um, when you get stuck. And uh, 
And then in terms of, you know, touring and all that jazz, it's uh, that's definitely a job. That's a lot of travel. It's a lot of logistics. It's a lot of, you know, getting yourself into a place where you can connect with the audience and not letting your, you know, your sort of like immediate logistical concerns interfere with that process. That's work. And so that's kind of the way I look at it when you when you sort of describe it as a job um but, but again it's a job i asked for and wished for when i was a little kid and so to get it um and get what the universe kind of get, get from the universe what you asked of it i think it only um makes sense to take it seriously and look at it as work and work hard at it and we talked about touring life and obviously all the logistics and everything, but you're now a family as well and have a child, so has that made it more difficult? Or we had twins. Oh, right, beautiful. So, yeah. yeah, it's wild. Um, yeah, it makes it harder. It makes you take it more, more seriously, too. Um, it makes some of the decisions a little harder. You know, like, we were only doing two UK shows on this tour. Yeah. And part of that is just because I need to get home. Um, my, my boys are young and we're still sort of figuring out how to balance my wife's career and our twins and their well-being and, you know, child care. And we live in California, which is, you know, it's not a cheap place to live. So there's just a lot of things to juggle. So there are difficult decisions that come into play. But, but again, I think like for me, panning out and getting an overview of the whole thing and trying to say like okay well what kind of example do i want to be for my kids you know what kind of people do we want them to be i think that um balancing all of these hopes and dreams and and a a career that has meaning and work that people value um with a family life in the end will prove to be a good thing for them instead of just the idea that dad's gone for some of the time so i think you know that's sort of my core belief about it so when I'm deciding to be away from them, I sort of lean on that so far. But it's a work in progress. I'm not exactly sure how it will all develop. But, you know, I get to spend more time with them, you know, over the course of a year than I would if I worked a 40-hour-a-week job. So yeah. in that sense, <clears throat> I'm, I'm spending, like, an enormous amount of time with them when I am with them because it's 24 hours a day. So... And how has becoming a dad worked out for you so far? Are you enjoying every moment of it? Has it changed your life as much as people say? Yeah, you know, there's this sort of eye-rolling thing that you do when you're a single person in your 30s or and everyone's got kids and they say, oh my God, you know, it's sort of like a thing you hear over and over. And you hear it over and over because it's true. Um, thankfully, like I had kids late and so I'm taking it really seriously. I got sober five years ago, so... There's a lot that's gone into it, but I love it. I think in the same way that we were describing the writing process changing and having it less be about me or, you know, ego-driven pursuits, having children takes you completely out of that. Like you are, I think it it was actually a struggle when we started this tour because we had been off for four months and I had spent so much time knocking around my house with my kids and making all of my decisions based around them and and not being in the ego space that you sort of need to be at least to deliver a compelling show um was sort of the way i was thinking about it and i struggled for the first two shows to kind of remember oh yeah well you know i'm sort of leading a show or guiding a show like that role is kind of 
less appealing to me because it does take some ego. But a friend of mine who lives in Munich, like we sat down and he's a real spiritual guy. He's the bass player for uh, Voices of Fire. Oh, cool. He gave me some really good guidance. He just was like, look, you know, what you're trying to do, he's like, you can still zero out your ego and be good at fronting a show. He's like, you're guiding a, a night. It's still not about you. It's about the songs. So he's like, you can go with this newfound, um, yeah, you know, dialing down of your ego that you found with your children and still put on compelling shows and, and that can help you. And it, it was a long conversation, which I won't bore you with, but generally it was like, it was another light bulb going on. But yeah, I love being a dad. It's, it's the greatest thing that's happened to me. And, um, and I've had a pretty... I've had a pretty nice run, <laughs> you know, to get to, to make up songs and have that be your job and sing them for people. And then this late in life to, to find love again and get married again and, and then have this beautiful family has been like just incredible. It's mind blowing. And you just mentioned obviously getting sober, which is also something else you should be very proud of. And uh, was this because you had a oh, Is this because you had a sense that it was all going in the the kind of wrong direction or what was it that was the final score for you? Oh, yeah. I had been through uh, my old band disintegrating, which I was leading, you know? Yeah. So you kind of look back and you have all these reasons why a band breaks up, but if you're the leader, it was on you to make the changes and correct the course of that. And um, and I had a construction company and, and a house that I lived in and at the office in Philadelphia, and all that was gone. And, you know, I was drifting around and touring a lot starting the solo career it was going well you know touring 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 and met my now wife and kind of you know we we got together and it wasn't really convenient she lived in california i'm from philly um i didn't know where i was going to land but i kind of followed that and knew that i had a good one you know i had a wonderful uh, person that loved me and sort of loved things about me that i couldn't see at the time it was partying hard post-divorce and, you know, kind of like letting alcohol fuel a lot of the early part of my career, the first two records, you know, and um, I just kind of realized that if I keep pouring alcohol on these problems and making this be the lubricant for how I operate, I'm going to hit a similar set of walls with everything again. You know, there's, it's likely that I'll fuck up my career. It's likely that I'll fuck up this relationship. You know, now I've got my brother with me in 2014, and like, what kind of example am I being to a young man that I, you know, that I'm employing to some degree, and then also like, you know, he looks up, to, he always look up to your big brother. It's just part of the equation. Yeah. So being drunk and asking loading, you know, loader guys at clubs for drugs. I mean, it just sucks. It's like I've seen that guy on tour before, you know, in other people. And realized, like, I didn't want to become that. No. And uh, my friend Brian Baker is the guitar player in uh, Bad Religion. And he said one of the funniest things about sobriety. He was like, you know, never underestimate. He said, like, when he saw me sometime after I'd quit, maybe, like, six months in, he's like, oh, you look great. I said, well, I stopped drinking. He goes, oh, I know. We've all talked about it. Well, I stopped drinking, too. He goes, never underestimate the power of vanity to be a motivator. 
and I just think like that was part of it too. You know, I didn't want to be, you know, this like broken down guy in his forties pulling up to the venue, like all wasted and hung over. It just is cruddy. It's, it's something you can sort of get away with in your twenties and thirties. But I just felt like when I was starting to push up into closer to 40, uh, I'm going to try something else. And, and I wasn't that committed to it until, um, I got well underway in a long tour. It was an eight-week summer tour with Rocky Botolato and Chris Farron. And uh, Chris was sober and Rocky was sober. So they were sort of like, uh-oh, you know, we've heard what it's like touring with you. Like, it's probably going to be fun, but we are not partaking. And <laughs> well, actually, I'm off the sauce for this run, too. And Chris was really helpful. He, he rode in our van with us and had, like, some real practical good tips. And, you know, Rocky is... He's been singing songs for a long time and been sober for a long time, so he was also helpful. So it's taken a small village of, of helpful friends to kind of help light the path. But um, yeah, it'll be five years in the summer, so you know. It's amazing to it's amazing. It's it's amazing to see how your life's turned around. You found new love. You've got married again. You've had twins. You're sober. You're I believe your latest album is your best ever work. You and your brother have got this relationship. You must be very grateful and kind of think, fuck, it could have gone so different. And now I'm so, you must be just like, wow, this has worked out well. Well, I, I actually did that. I did what you're describing at the end of 2019, you know, as we were getting into the holidays and stuff and, you know, I'm setting up a Christmas tree with my twin boys. And, you know, I've got friends that died, you know, many friends over the last decade. Yeah. It was due to mental illness stuff and, and you know, suicide and, and alcoholism and all kinds of things that take that have taken people out. It was really easy for that to be me. <clears throat> and uh, it just would have been a disaster when, when you see how good life can be. I mean, I see that, but, you know, it, it's less about me. It, you know, you have to be willing to get to work. But there's a certain amount of grace to it that, that like, that, I mean, is above me. That I, You know, I'm not, like, a religious guy by any stretch. Um, but there is something about it that, like, you know, when you say that to me, I get shy because I'm like, well, I didn't do it. You know, and I guess you could say I did. I stopped drinking. But, you know, like, I, I, I might just be lucky. You know, like, the songs came and, and love came and you know it's taken therapy and hard work and it will continue to like all this stuff could could blow away again yeah be, it's possible you know so i think like you kind of have to do the requisite work that, that like is needed to to maintain you know you kind of do maintenance on, on the on the temple yeah <laughs> or else it falls apart so i think hopefully i can do that with a clear mind and and uh, in knowing that, like, I, you know, I, I am privileged. I do have a lot of love in my life. And, and, and there's, there's certainly people who sing better and, and write better that don't get to play to this many people. So I think, like, I don't take it for granted. Cool, man. Hey, thanks so much for, for doing this. I really appreciate that you took the time. So there it is. There's my interview with me and Dave. And as I said at the start of today's podcast, what a great guy he is. One of the nicest guys, so easy to talk to. When I was doing the interview, it was like I'd known him for absolutely years. So chilled. He opened up so much. 
And considering the interview is quite short, we got so much out of him. And it's just made me fall in love even deeper with the songs. And if you haven't by this point of the interview listened to the album Kick, what the fuck are you doing? Go and have a listen now because it's easily my album of 2019. There's not a bad song on there. Just start it from the beginning, let it play all the way through and you will not regret it. If you don't want to go and buy the CD or the vinyl, get on Spotify or Apple Music and just go and listen. And no, he hasn't paid me to say that. It's from the heart. It really is that good. As you know, everyone out there, Mark and me right now is full on. I'm doing episodes weekly again, which is great after having just over a month off. And you know what? As it stands right now, I think I've got 12 interviews ready on the laptop, ready to release. So if that's easily the next three months taken care of. I've seen some new people sign up to my Patreon, so thank you for coming on board and supporting this podcast. Truly, this podcast makes no money at all. Everyone knows this, I don't keep it a secret. Every penny that comes in through the actual Patreon goes straight back into the podcast. It gives me the opportunity to travel over the UK, do more and more interviews like this, and get more and more episodes. And with festival season coming up in the summer, like Download, 2000 Trees, Reading, and I want to get all these done, but I can't do it without your support. So if you aren't one of my Patreons right now, jump on board. I think I say this every episode. You can like... Subscribe for as little as, I think it's 70p a month. And for that, you're getting four episodes, which I think is pretty good value for money. And like I said, I don't get that money. It just goes straight back in, which means more and more episodes. As an incentive to make you join, I've just got a deal with Last Exit to Nowhere. So every month, you're going to get the opportunity to win one of their latest designs. So thanks to those guys. We're going to have Funkos again. We're going to have some memorabilia. Whenever I'm interviewing any of the guests, if I can get something signed, I'll do it. But also, you're going to get the episodes early. God, if I haven't sold this to you by now, I might as well just give up. But hopefully, you've listened and thought you'll support me. But if you don't, and you just like the podcast, and you don't want to get on Patreon, jump on markandme.com, because on there, there's my Twitter, my Facebook, my Instagram, and my email. Old school email. Do you know what? Nothing beats opening my Mark and Me email and reading feedback from you guys out there that listen. It means the absolute world. I respond to every single email, tweet, Facebook comment, Instagram. Test me if you don't believe me. Do it, because I absolutely love reading all your comments. I also want to dedicate this episode to three very close friends. They're the reason that I do this podcast. They're very, very close friends of mine. Ben, you know who you are. Mike and my good friend Kinza. This episode is for you three. They're all absolutely massive fans of Dave and I dedicate this episode to you. So thank you for all the love, all the support and I'll be back in a week's time with a brand new episode of Mark and Me. Take care everyone. I was always working steady, but I never called it art. I got my shit together, meeting Christ and reading Marx. It failed my little fire, but it spread the dying spark. Go tell the young Messiah what happens to the heart. There's a mist of summer kisses where I tried to double park. The rivalry was vicious, the women were in charge. It was nothing, it was business, but it left an ugly mark. I've come here to revisit.
what happens to the heart I was selling holy trinkets I was dressing kind of sharp Had a pussy in the kitchen And a panther in the yard In the prison of the gifted I was friendly with the guards So I never had to witness What happens to the heart I should have seen it coming After all, I knew the chart Just to look at her was trouble It was trouble from the start Sure, we played a stunning couple, but I never liked the part. It ain't pretty, it ain't subtle. What happens to the heart? Now the angel's got a fiddle, the devil's got a harp. Every soul is like a minnow. Every mind is like a shark. May I have broken every window, but the house, the house is dark. I care but very little. What happens to the heart? Then I studied with this beggar. He was filthy, he was scarred By the claws of many women He had failed to disregard No fable, hear no lesson No singing, metal lark Just a filthy beggar guessing What happens to the heart? Disagree. 